Welcome to the Push-Pull Sales and Marketing Podcast. I'm Marcella. And I'm Sherry. And each episode will provide you with sales and marketing strategies that you can implement immediately into your own business. All right. So very excited to have on the show. I have Mary Lou Tyler. She is the CEO of Strategic Pipeline. She uh, currently uh, works in her business works as a uh, Fortune uh, 1000 uh, consulting firm. So she works with some of the, uh, some of the largest companies. Uh, within within the United States, and she's also a well accomplished author, uh, publishing. Uh, you have two books out there, correct? Two, yes. Two books out there. Okay. So so for our listeners, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, some of your interests? Sure. Yeah, I've been uh, working in this particular portion of the pipeline, what we call top of funnel. For about going on 30 years now, so I've been involved in lead generation before the internet. We used to do direct mail and direct response and telephone work. And so I've been really passionate about this particular portion of the pipeline for quite some time. I have my training, though, as a systems engineer. I'm actually a software developer, programmer. And really? I came up through the ranks of engineering. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I was in a situation back then, you know, where we were selling disruptive products. A lot of the new technologies were coming out. We were getting rid of analog, moving into digital. So the engineers got pulled into sales roles for support purposes. And then one day I came into work and my boss said to me, you are now a salesperson. We just fired all the salespeople because they don't know how to sell these products. So wow. that's how I got into sales. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, was there like any like, uh, excuse me? Like, <laughs> there like was moment? a little bit of a, for me, it was it was fear. I mean, that's the, the best way to describe it because I really was in the background and I'm not necessarily the most outgoing person on the planet. So to be able to sit there and have client facing anything was really scary for me. And we got no training. We were just put into those roles and, you know, it's akin to being given a phone book and asked to cold call. You know, it was like that. I gotcha. I gotcha. So, so were there people in your organization where were they given the, uh, were they given the three point, uh, motivational speech? So the first one is, you know, here's your cards. Here's the door. Second one, hang in there. Third one, if you don't sell something, we're going to fire you soon. Uh, it's what have you done for me lately? So if I brought in a deal day, day before, Today mm-hmm. was a new day, and what have you done for me? That was pretty much the mentality. Gotcha, gotcha. And I'm imagining, especially having that like engineer's background, and also as you said, where you felt like you were a little bit more like behind the scenes. We uh, we talked about that when we had uh, Tom Hopkins on. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to get toward the middle because you have the interested introvert and you have the interesting extrovert, and everyone should be focusing toward the middle because. You're probably thinking more like along the client's process and what they're looking to do and thinking of it in a more analytical way, yes. um, which is definitely a different approach from your outside salespeople or the salespeople that pretty much said like, hey, these people can't sell because maybe they're not the ones that are actually understanding the client needs, what outcome they want. And also, you know, from your side too, being in engineering and, and, and operations, really seeing, hey, is this really even a good fit? 
It was definitely coming from more of a consultative approach of, you know, let's not waste our time on each other if it's not a good fit. Mm-hmm. But what I learned to to really my nature is to be very curious, so I really played up that strength. And that, uh, coupled with very good listening skills, made me a natural, actually, to be in sales. And I was very humble and very truthful. <laughs> so it all worked together to produce, uh, you know, every job I had in sales, I was in very good shape in terms of my quota. Cool, cool. Uh, and, and and that's awesome, too, just, you know, someone who kind of, like, fell into it accidentally. So kind of fast-forwarding to today, what are you mm-hmm. doing right now, and how did you end up, you know, having having your own business at this point? Well, I actually have been in business for myself since the early 90s. So I lasted a very short time in corporate America, which is kind of funny because that's where I spend most of my time consulting is in the higher, you know, the enterprise level type of company. Mm -hmm. But um, I just really enjoyed being on my own. And I was working for startups mostly when I started. And then a lot of them either got bought out, went under. So I, at one point, called my client base, told them I was going to go off and do my own thing. We were working on a contact center software application that needed a lot of tweaking and a lot of development work. So I started a a firm that worked on that particular software offering. And that's how I started. So I've been in the lead generation space in some capacity from either developing direct response information systems, actually coding them, to deploying them, to managing large contact centers, and now in my own space, helping people put these systems in. Okay. So, and, and, and I'm sure you kind of have some things that you normally hear. So what are, what are some common questions? So someone says, okay, so when you say top of funnel and you're talking lead generation and all that good stuff. So someone first hears that, what are questions that people normally ask you? They normally ask, um, if, if they're thinking about, traversing down the funnel like what's the natural point for a handoff if they have do have sales reps with multiple roles Mm -hmm. there's a there's a definite you know question big question mark about how far do we take this thing in to the pipeline before we transition it or should we even do that or should we keep a team together from initial conversation all the way through close one and then servicing so i get a lot of that i get a lot of you know how do we manage these teams these pods i also have people ask me about which is good you know the different types of leads and lead sources and which ones they should focus on uh, which is a very good question because not all leads are created equal, and we established that in predictable revenue. Mm-hmm. But there's still a big misunderstanding about the predictability of leads and also this minnows versus whales concept of not all leads are worth your time either. So I get that question a lot. And then the separation of roles is always a big question. Gotcha. So, so kind of diving into that so and, and you kind of said that a little bit before we before we hopped on this call mm-hmm. um so how how resistant do you feel businesses are today and, and maybe maybe it's less so in your space because you kind of have you have a proven model especially in the in the enterprise where maybe it's a little bit more complex cycle or maybe a little bit more complex product how much mm-hmm. resistance do you get or how much feedback do you get in terms of well, no, I've had one sales rep in one role and they're responsible for the whole thing. And and and, and why would I segment it at that point? Like, why wouldn't I just hire another company that would basically start the funnel? You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. No, I, you know, there's always valid points to every argument, if you will. Um, But what I like to think about is the amount of time we're spending to prepare an outsourcer for doing the lead generation work. We Mm -hmm. might as well concentrate on doing that internally. I'm still a a fan of starting the process internally. Mm -hmm. And once we have the process figured out, we know why people should change, why now, and why us. We understand the different buying scenarios of our product with the different personas that we're trying to sell to. So once we have that sort of playbook done, then I'm, I'm okay with them shopping around an outsourcer to do that part of the funnel, primarily because they may not have the tools that allow them to do the number of dials and, you know, the things that automation allows, but you have to have the telephony automation on-prem. They may not have it. So I do see some areas where once we get our story done, we really understand what we're doing, then outsourcing it looks like a, a, a viable option. I've seen outsources throughout the entire funnel. Some people outsource the lead gen, some or the prospecting piece. Some people are actually outsourcing the account executive piece. So hmm. it really depends on your application, how it's sold, whether or not you really have that process down and figured out your your not only your sales process but your buyer's buying process. And then there's always this kind of give and take just to see what the resources are and what we can do. So I like to go in descriptively to understand where we are, say, the union today. Then we do the predictive component, which says, here's where we'd like to get to. Here's how life we would like to be. And then we look at it prescriptively saying, well, here's the resources we have to actually do this thing. So where can we where can we add? Where can we off, off uh, load? Or where can we cut back if we need to the different types of paths that are coming in in order for us to get these accounts to close? Sure. And and one thing in, in terms of thinking it from a larger larger perspective too, especially when you are changing, um, you know how you actually divide up divide up the labor there. I mean, what would you say are like if you do have a business that actually adopts it, like where maybe you have some inside salespeople that are doing some of the upfront work in terms of the lead gen and the, and the top of the funnel? What can businesses do, and what information do you feel is the most important to kind of pass along and not kind of lose that along the way? Especially when you hand off from one person to the next. I mean, the one thing that might be off-putting to a customer is is that if the second person asks the exact same questions over again, it's like, well, what was the first person doing? So how do you, how do you manage that actual flow of information or what pieces do you feel are the most important? Well, we definitely map everything out. So each, if you think of an assembly line, that's the way the pipeline is in my head. Mm-hmm. And an assembly line has intelligence stations along the way so that you don't have anything fall apart as you're moving this thing down that assembly line. So we look at those those intelligent stations to see what it is that we need to have really fine-tuned and spot-on before it can pass go and go to the next station. And that's really how I look at it. So the handoff, if we do handoff between a prospector and an account executive, for example, mm-hmm. is typically done after the band process is, is actually completed. But some companies don't even go that far. Some companies just try to get a fit call in, what we call an AWAF call. Are we a fit call? Mm-hmm. They try to get a 15-minute qualification call in Once that happens and they get their top three qualifiers defined, the AE is brought in right then. Some of my clients actually start there because they're not comfortable with this whole handoff thing. So they actually bring the AE in earlier, but as they get more comfortable, as they start realizing that the AE resource is best utilized from opportunity to close, 
Then we start shifting things down the pipeline. But we have metrics that measure all of these intelligent uh, workstations so that we know exactly where the best place is to do that type of handoff. Hmm. Now, one thing from from an HR standpoint, then. So again, you mentioned the actual uh, the actual like assembly line. Do you feel that both the account executive and the prospector are happier in their role, knowing that that like, hey, this is what I'm doing, and they're becoming a, a master at that, and then like where they see a path where they can kind of move things up, or do you feel like sometimes there is some pushback in terms of, well, I was doing multiple roles before, and I like the variety, and now you're kind of you're kind of switching things up a little bit on, on the actual sensor. So from an HR standpoint, do you feel like people are, are happier having like one specific role and people don't feel like as overwhelmed, so to speak? It really depends on the culture. I'm working with a client now, mm-hmm. and I'll just call them old school versus new school sales okay. reps, just for lack of a better term. Okay. But the old school folks we really would like to continue their, doing their book of business the way they do it now which sure. means they, they do all of the roles. So there ha- you have to kind of ebb and flow with that and say, okay, if that's going to be in the line in the sand, then let's bring these other folks, the new school people, and get them started to see if this separation of roles thing really will work in this corporate culture. So again, you know, you pick your battles. So we really want to try to get a pod concept going, which is a prospector with some AEs and then a service person and maybe even a marketing person, marketing uh, account rep if you do have that many inbound leads to support one. And then we we start this little skunk works over to the side and we measure the progress. And eventually I've seen a lot of the old timers want to pop on because they're realizing, wow, I can get someone to qualify my leads for me. I can direct them as to how I want these leads qualified, how far I want them to go in. And we work as a team. So eventually some of those guys will come over. Gotcha. And to the dark side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, do, do you think in those situations too, you also spend a decent amount of time in terms of figuring out compensation plans or you don't get into that in terms of the actual division of labor? I mean, because you do talk about it like in your book too, because I mean, you have to, you have to incentivize the, the actual prospector yeah. for the quality of the leads too, because I mean, if he's just just throwing stuff down the pipeline to throw stuff down the pipeline, I mean, some quantity isn't necessarily more important than than quality, especially in a sales environment. Right. And, you know, up market, we have a lot of what's called MBOs, management by objectives. So we put those MBOs at the critical junction boxes, if you will, in the pipeline. So this sales qualified lead to sales accepted lead, that ratio, we have to have a certain percentage of quality that we that we look for and we won't let it go through otherwise. So it's, it's a pretty tight ship once we get those metrics in place mm-hmm. because we're putting metrics in that are meaningful in nature that advance the advance that record, either positionally forward in the pipeline or out of the active pipeline. There's no like, there's no stagnant water anywhere in the pipeline. Once we start doing this type of process that I, that I work on. That's good. I, I mean, I remember a uh, prior organization I worked for. I'm not going to say the gentleman's name, but uh, we had a gentleman who would do the prospecting. And sometimes when you were sent on a wild goose chase, uh, you would say you got Z'd because his last name his last name began with Z. So all the sales reps knew, like, all right, well, well, well where did this lead come from? They're like, oh, it came from Z. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is not going to be fun. And yes. uh, he, he, I mean, he, he would he would machine gun out, and you know the things he would say to kind of to kind of secure the appointment or things like that were that would be listed. The quality of information greatly greatly deteriorated from what he generated to to what happened when the actual sales rep uh, was actually in front of the prospect. 
Um, okay, so that's interesting. So how do you feel about then in terms of changing that model? A sales rep, can, can a sales rep then like move on up and kind of go through the ranks? Like, is that the ideal thing? Like if you think of, you know, for example, in your book, like like if you work with the salesforce.com, a lot of the people that are prospectors work their way up to small accounts, then work their way up to, to larger accounts and, and they kind of see an actual progression. Or do you mm-hmm. feel like people kind of stay in roles longer now? Like, like how do you, how do you keep that also balanced longer term too? I really like the idea of if you want to move within the organization and try different roles. I mean, my daughter right now is going to be an English major. And as I think about that, it's like, wow, what do you do with that? Because when I was a computer science major, we went in school day one and they owned our lives for the last, you know, for four years. And then there was only so many jobs that you can do as a programmer. So I like the idea of experimenting if you want, but I also have people, me included, who have been in lead gen and, and prospecting and love it and want and just love ta- starting conversations with people we don't know. So I think if the comp's there and you're feeling that you're contributing to the corporation and that you have a good balance of work life, then some people stay. But I think, you know, this particular type of organizational flow of the pipeline allows for a natural progression. I mean, since predictable revenue was written, Mm -hmm. we've seen the SDR role even splitting because of account-based selling. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now how about when you dive into a little bit again, and and, and I I would say it's, it's kind of, it's kind of fairly clear and we'll cover that in a little bit too, like what sets your process apart? Um, How much time do you, do you feel should be emphasized in terms of like the, because a lot of what you what you say in terms of you know when when you have that when you have that specific prospecting role a lot of that too is when you get the list and you have the actual emails and and doing that versus you know all right well if I sent out seventy emails today and I got ten responses back how much um, how much uh, personalization do you feel like the sales reps should spend does that matter on the actual size of the deal or do you feel like you know for the most part if you have a good idea in terms of your ideal client there doesn't need to be that much uh, customization in terms of the email templates. I think there's there's a combination of things here. There's the the type of account, and I like to think of accounts as tiered, where you have your core accounts, the ones that you really want to have as clients in the middle of the bullseye. Mm-hmm. And then out from that is you know the 20 to 40 accounts that would qualify as a core account, but you already have your core accounts. So they would move ebb and flow between core and extended, depending on what happened with the core. And then you have everybody else. You have that, and then you have also, where is this record positionally in the pipeline. Like I was telling my class yesterday, if you've got a lot of records in the cold status, meaning you haven't started a conversation, you're still not sure if you have the right guy, which does happen still because especially in enterprise, there's multiple roles that can make decisions on your product and you have to find the right person. So if you're in cold status, I do like the idea of more of a leveraging technology to help you get that first conversation, meaning that our emails are still very value-driven, and they are written by persona role, but they're not saying, hey, Kelly, I saw you know, I heard, I heard, saw you wrote about your son's soccer game yesterday, and they're not that personalized, okay? But when they move into working status, which is you found the right person, you confirm this is the right guy, and now you're trying to really start building that rapport and trust, then I'm a fan of adding more personalization with a templated email. So your your actual sales conversation and sales argument is predefined, but you're tweaking that email so that it's relevant for your prospect. Mm -hmm. 
And then and, and one thing I really like about your books too, and I wish more people would embrace this, the, the, and you went into so much detail in terms of the length of the subject line, the length of the actual email itself, and if it looks just like a normal like text email versus like with all mm-hmm. the bells and whistles and what actually works, you know, it's yeah. de- it would would again I, I would assume I would know the answer here, but you would probably agree that at this point it's better to have a shorter initial intro email than to have like the and I love the examples too. We're like, oh, we're like a best in class and blah blah blah, and it kind of goes in A, B, C, and D, and I'm like, I'm I'm not even going to read that thing. <laughs> yeah, I think because of the the one of the things that we forget sometimes clients especially is we're in the outreach business here, so we're actually picking those whales, those core accounts that we want to go after. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily know what level of awareness these people in are in. When, when they come inbound to us, they've done, theoretically, a search, an external search. Sure. So they know there's a solution out there because they've searched for it, and they may even know there's a vendor out there, meaning us. So those are two levels of the five levels of awareness. But when we're doing outreach, we have to also take into consideration the people who are unaware, the people who don't really know they have a problem and don't really think it involves them at all, and the people who don't know there's a solution to their problem. That still exists out there. So our emails have to be able to write to that person, which means, as you pointed out, their consumption of an email, if they're in an unaware state, is going to be very, very brief, very fast. It's not going to be reading a five-page white paper when they're in that unaware state. So what we need to do is spoon feed them information that sort of wakes up the chill, gets them jolted, interrupts them. They look like, what? What was that? You know, that kind of interruption and curiosity and use all those triggers that Cialdini talks about in his book on influence, really embed that into the email, but it's like billboard size. It's really tiny. And we're just trying to just get him enough of the carrot so we can pull him gently into the next conversation and then the next conversation. And we're always being helpful. We're always adding value. We're always suggesting a next step. And we're their guide, and they're our hero. And that's how we have to see them as we write our emails. Sure. Now, in terms of when things are moving along the process here, and and, and I think a lot of sales managers and organizations also kind of worry about that, especially when you change the model. Uh, When you do provide so much incremental value up front that Mm -hmm. you might have made somebody aware of a problem, how do I... How do I still leverage myself to the point where the client, especially when you you have different segmentation, uh, how do I leverage myself so that way the client doesn't just take all the information that I just made them aware of and then shop it around to a different vendor? Like how how would I how would I kind of ensure that, especially as I'm maybe providing all that value up front after I get that initial interest? Well, you're really looking at sharing with them as the guide, others who have taken your hand and taken that first step with you and what their results were by taking that first step. Someone who's midway down the success path and how they're doing right now, and then someone who's reached the happily ever after state, all because they took your hand. So there's a big social proof aspect of this that once you get them interested and you know awakened from their sleep, then you switch to a logical argument with specificity around it, giving them ideas of testimonials, endorsements, why other people have chosen you to take them through this journey. That Mm -hmm. is also embedded in the email and in the 
predictable prospecting, we go through this construct called compel with content Mm -hmm. that actually walks you through how to create, whether it's 80 words or 480 words, an email so that has all these components in it. It's like you're writing a little mini story in every email. And it's not hard to do because I have examples in the book showing you how it's done. Oh, yeah. And, and going through, uh, I, again, like how you go, how much detail you go into. And I, I love books that have a lot of like meat and content to them because sometimes you'll read a you'll read a book um, and, and, and you'll just see like you're just you're just rinsing or repeating the same topic over again. So yours is very tactical. And I'm going to ask, were you were you an English like minor or anything like that? Because like also like your, your your word choices and your verbiage, it's 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 it doesn't sound like a computer science you know engineer <laughs> you know it's it's good it's 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 very very well written and again you know when you talk about you know very vibrant language you know waking them from their sleep and kind of giving them a jolt and stuff like that like just like the way like you kind of balance to you know high level high level because you know for some of our listeners too that might not be on the enterprise side when you're saying like ae band and all that stuff some of those acronyms people not might not understand, mm-hmm. but in the same token, you also have a very, um, a very vibrant language that kind of, kind of gets people's attention. I mean, did you have any sort of, you know, writing background prior? Not prior, but as we talked about before, being thrown into a situation, I am, and I love learning. Mm-hmm. I studied and studied and studied copywriting and direct response and persuasive copywriting. I was just in a mastermind last year with Joanna Weeb at Copy Hackers, for example. And just to learn as much as I could about how to write conversationally. And it just, because I do that so much now, and I do write as part of my block time, mm-hmm. which is what I what I call time where we do a particular task in blocks as a business developer, prospector, I write every day. And I just get a journal out and write. I don't necessarily write anything of value, but because I write so much and I talk the way I write, and that's how I teach my students to do their emails is have that sales conversation with your prospect as if they're sitting belly to belly right across from you and then record that conversation into your phone transcribe it and guess what you've probably got some really great content for your emails because you speak the sales conversation better than anyone else in your organization so all you now need to do now is get that down on paper and get it into an email Absolutely. I like it. Now, one thing, and you do, you do touch this in, in your book as well, especially when you talk about that band uh, model. And the first B is obviously in, in that model is budget. Um, mm-hmm. And this is an area where there's definitely a lot of, a lot of debate, especially, you know, like, and you address, like, do you say in the beginning? Do you kind of say that at the, at the end? Do you feel like, especially because things can, solutions can be so customized and, you know, like what I might be offering and what the outcome that, that the customer might like, might, might actually want where the budget would pretty much be irrelevant if I have a strong enough ROI. Do you feel like things have really shifted in terms of the need for customization in the product where the budget almost does, where it doesn't really come to play? And, and unless obviously, I mean, it's fairly basic stuff where you're selling a $50,000 piece of equipment to, you know, a business that only has like a $5,000 budget where you're kind of that far apart I mean, how do you feel in terms of that actual change and how things are moving now, especially with, you know, so much need for, for customization? I mean, you're just talking about your previous organization. Um, it's one of the best things about Salesforce. And it's also one of, it's one of the most difficult things about, about Salesforce.com um, is you have so much customization, you know, in terms of what you want or what kind of pieces you can put in. 
Right. I, you know, I think once again, since we're targeting these accounts, this mm-hmm. is because I, my specialty is in outreach. So there is a little wiggle room when it comes to the budget question. And I mm-hmm. think that it's really based on the product, uh, what I call the buying scenario of wh- how much you need to get your foot in the door kind of thing. So, you know, I had a client, for example, has one product, but they sold it three different ways. So they and they had different requirements for qualification based on the way they were selling the same product. Some needed the budget, some didn't. So I think you have to look at how important is this client to us? Is it okay for us to get in the door on a project basis and get stuff done and then you know wow them with our over-delivery and our over-servicing and then move into more strategic initiatives that they may have that are longer term? Or am I trying to go after the strategic initiative right away, which means there has to be some type of usual budget that they're planning for because it's a major forklift upgrade, for example. Yeah. And there's yeah. usually budget assigned to that. So that's really the call of the sales teams based on the products that they're positioning, the type of application they're trying to get the product in, whether they're trying to get it in the door, and whether this is a key account or a core account. Okay. And especially for the role of the prospector, how mm-hmm. how do you think or what kind of tools or what kind of suggestions would you have, especially now to navigate? Because in, in the ideal world we had, you know, which is, you know, 20, 30 years ago when, when I spoke with the president, I had one single decision maker. And now right. it's more of a community effort in terms of getting multiple people on board. So if I'm selling, you know, software before, if I just talked to the software guy, I was good. Now I need to get the finance guy involved and then you talk about the budget word, you know, and then the end user is now more important. Whereas before they might not have actually taken in that actual feedback. And if you if you think about the, um, what, what I believe it's the challenger customer uh, it, now you're looking for like the 5.9 people. I forget the exact number, but it's like uh, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 like five point something in terms 5. of five point three or something like that. Yeah. Okay. See exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, it's this is what I love about predictable revenue because predictable revenue, if you look in the in the, in the book published in 2011, case study probably 2004 or five, I think they there's a 315 process in that book. And what that is, is a 15-minute AWAF call, which is to get your top three qualifiers figured out. So is this a go, no, no go? It's a go, no go decision right then. Mm-hmm. Then you go to a one-hour discovery call with usually one decision maker. And then you schedule a two-hour qualification call with the team from the other from the client, which means you're going to need to find them and get them in the same room and have a two-hour call with them. That was the process that Predictable Revenue defined in this framework. So it was always thinking of more complex type sales. It can be used and it's been successfully you hand it over to the account executive to take it the rest of the way. So I think, you know, that question about multiple people is really when you're doing your planning of the pipeline for the products that you're servicing and also the personas that you're going to meet along the way in the pipeline. All of that should be figured out as from a planning perspective before you start any engine like this and turning the thing on because you don't know until you really plan how long these conversations are going to take. And the predictable revenue formula, page 42 of the book, talks about lag as being one of the biggest elements of predictability. And lag is extended when you have more people that you need to sell your product or service to or at least get them all on the same page so you can take that lead, pass it, pass that baton, the rest of the way to the account executive. Very good, very good. 
So to kind of get into um, some some stuff specifically to you. So and again, uh, if if you haven't already picked up one one of Mary Lou's book, I really recommend both of them too because again, you you kind of go through and if you are that old school person, you probably would think like, oh well, I don't like that model or you know, well it worked for this company because they had the brand recognition or it worked in this case. And you do a good job in terms of making your case and having the numbers and saying, okay, this is why. This is why this model works, and this is something we experiment. And you talk about separating and kind of kind of playing with. And it's nice that you kind of were fortunate enough uh, to be in a position where you can kind of experiment a little bit. Whereas some companies, if you say like I'm going to change how we do the model, um, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's not change. Change is not the easiest thing for 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 people, and anyone in sales knows that too, as they're trying to get a customer to move from one vendor to themselves or to move from a smaller item to a larger item. Um, but specifically, I did want to ask. Uh, what is an example of how your product or how your service helped, helped, helped the business? Or maybe like what, what, what would you say you're the most proud of so far in your career in terms of maybe like your best success story? Oh, I've had so many. But what, what's really interested me with the second book is that out of the woodwork, I've been getting a lot of inquiries in from real estate people. And also from insurance and uh, like FAs, financial advisors. These are people who sell direct to consumer usually, not be. And the book says B two B right on the cover, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yep. And um, so I've been working and dabbling in uh, real estate lately to see how this thing can actually chunk away. And we've had so many successes that uh, I've been very pleasantly surprised. Now, granted. We're, we're doing all roles, but what we're doing is we're blocking out the time for prospecting um, a couple of blocks a week instead of a daily activity. What's, what's not really changed is the fact that we're still set, selling in some circumstances to multiple people. Where they come in relative to the position in the pipeline is where things vary. So mm-hmm. a prospector may have to start a conversation with one persona and then as it progresses on towards the opportunity, more people are brought in to either validate that this is a good initiative to spend time on, or they bring in people based on relative significance of what they're learning as they go. And what we need to worry about now is that not only are there more people, but we have to make sure that we are prepared with these sales conversations early on as a prospector to cover these people and have them all lined up. Some of them will be concerned about budget, some may not. So that's why I like to look at the planning for qualification based on the buying scenario, what product we're selling into that organization for what type of project, and also the persona that we're talking to. So if we work that up front, and I typically see a matrix that's based on the buying scenario of the product and sometimes even by the persona as to whether we just need need We need authority. We may need timing and fit because timing is still a very important parameter for predictability in the framework. And predictable revenue rely on that in order to be able to give someone a pretty good idea of what you need to pour in at the top in order to generate the opportunities you're looking for that would eventually close. Awesome. All right. So to kind of transition things, um, if you could give our listeners – a, a recommendation or a resource. It could be a book, it could be an app, it could be a course. Uh, obviously, excluding your own material because we're already going to reference that, and, and I'll also give uh, also give my, my my own thoughts uh, on on the books as well. Uh, what would you recommend mm-hmm. for our listeners? 
Well, if they're focusing on sales process, mm-hmm. the books like Predictable Revenue and Predictable Prospecting will give you a really good understanding of a process for sales for prospecting, top of funnel. Mm-hmm. If but if but all these books are great, but if you're if they also will accentuate any type of skills issues you have. So along with that, I would really focus on your questioning skills. So the old books like Neil Rackham's Spin Selling of how to ask questions that are designed to agitate our prospects or to think outside the box. Those are the types of uh, questions that we really want to focus on. And there are books that talk about how to do those types of skills that are independent of what I could teach you with process. Awesome. And if our listeners, they've wanted to reach out to you, they wanted to shake up their organization and, you know, someone is like, hey, you know, I like this idea. I like to focus on the top of funnel. I like to focus on on maybe segmenting some things because, you know, when I did look at the data and some people will find this, I looked at the data and, you know, as you talk about in your book, like, all right, so you had this whole blitz day. When did you did you when when did you call that person again? It's like, oh no, I just called that one day. That was it. Um, so if someone wants to reach out to you, and and they're looking for help. What would be the best way? How 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 can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, the easiest way is uh, if you're into LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. It's Mary Lou Tyler. So just do a search on me, and you'll find me. I do a lot of blog posts, or I try to, on various topics that. I find are important as we work through the process. The most recent one I did was on telephone skills. So it's called the seven healthy habits to book more first meetings. And it goes through all the different phone issues that you come across. That's one place to get me. Uh, MaryLouTyler.com is my website. Mm-hmm. And for readers of the book, I have a special page called swag. So it's MaryLouTyler.com slash S W A. G, mm-hmm. And that page is loaded with teachings and webinars and trainings and worksheets and guides and everything I could think of to put in there that would help you do this thing yourself. If you took the book and you really wanted to work it yourself, I've given you all the worksheets that I use with clients in order to start planning your own process. That's awesome. That's awesome. And and just one thing for our listeners, too, and again, I've, I read... I read both books. Um, I also, uh, believe it or not, actually, I had um, I, ha- I had it on Audible as well. Um, I do recommend actually picking up the actual physical copy because there's so much in it that's very specific in terms of, you know, like the charts and the graphs and like you showing the numbers and talking about, you know, the actual SWOT analysis in each organization and stuff like that. I, I think having the actual hard copy of the book is, is going to take you very, very far, have notes and being able to highlight that. And likewise, um, you know, Mary Lou, she, she, she's very, um, upfront and giving you, you know, the, that, that actual resource. So you can see the worksheets and you can see exactly what, you know, what, what you normally do, you know, and in terms of, if you want help aside from that and you wanted to kind of, to kind of ask for Mary Lou's advice, I would definitely reach out to her as well. Um, and Mary Lou, any sort of final thoughts, any other words of wisdom for our listeners? No, I think the, the main thing is to, when you end this call, draw your framework, draw your sales process on the back of a napkin. You know, really, it's that, it's that important mm-hmm. to really draw your pipeline. Think about those intelligence stations that we were talking about mm-hmm. and how, how you can create 
just a few little items in there, metrics, that would be meaningful in nature so you can start tracking where things are getting gunky and sluggish and, and having problems. Because And then fix one thing at a time. Just one thing, and but focus on doing one thing at a time to fix. And very soon you'll have a robust, high-velocity framework that will get you to the goal you want. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Mary Lou. Really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. I think that wraps things up for the week. Thank you to Ben Sound for our intro and outro music. Thanks to you guys for listening. Obviously, a big thank you to Mary Lou Tyler for hopping on the show. Tune in next time where we'll tackle another topic. You can view show notes and resources at pushpullsales.com. Follow us on Instagram at pushpullsales. Tweet us at pushpullsales. Or shoot us an email over at pushpullsales at gmail.com. Thanks. See you guys.